Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we are back with part two of our listener request from Jamie. The absolutely insane story of the Norwegian black metal band Mayhem. Hell yeah. (laughs) So today you get the conclusion. (laughs) And I don't think that you're going to actually know what happens next. Okay, great, 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 great. Uh, Hey, look, guys, if you want to listen to the music of Mayhem, some of their influences and some of their contemporaries, Muriel put together a Spotify playlist, and that link is in the show notes. So if you're trying to rock out, uh, give that little clicky click click. Oh, my God. And turn the volume (laughs) directly sky high. So I put it in chronological order. So you can kind of listen to it like the roots of metal Uh into like you know, black metal and death metal. And then on this list are Mayhem Uh and some of Mayhem's contemporaries. I covered that. Right, great. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, you get some of the stuff that Euronymous was into that everybody teased him about. So that's like uh, (laughs) Brian Eno and the German band Kraftwerk, which is great. So if black metal sounds like a complete onslaught of, uh, I don't know, just being attacked, then probably just jump directly to the funny influences that his friends made fun of him about. Honestly, I think it's a, I'm not like a huge metal fan. I like kind of the early stuff like Iron butterfly kind of but uh-huh. uh i don't even know what iron butterfly is i know iron maiden and i know black sabbath and i know oh yeah i like black sabbath yeah. yeah there's some music like i don't think i put i'd put it on a playlist that i'd like really rock out to but yeah. that i do like when i hear it mm-hmm. um but i do think it's kind of gives you a good context of what it is because sometimes if you don't have a point of reference you're like what is this what are you talking about like listen to it it's easier to listen to it than it is for me Describe it. <laughs> yeah. And then he takes the guitar and he slams it with his hand. Okay. Muriel hit these people with the warning that they so desperately need. All right. This is a true story involving murder, violence in this one, a lot of violence, mm-hmm. drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably do a little cursing and joking about, you know, musical genres we know nothing about. So if you don't like that kind of stuff, please turn us off. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. Nick wanted me to bring him in, and he said, don't say anything about how this is my favorite part with it. You can't read out loud. So, <laughs> Just bring me in in a way that you don't bring me in every time it's my turn to do a recap. On oh, my gosh, Nick, three. I completely forgot what I said last week. Can you remind me? <laughs> Thank you. Okay, here we are. Nick's recap. It's the early 90s in Oslo, Norway. There are two kinds of people. 
composers and the band Mayhem. <laughs> Mayhem is thought of as a leaning innovator in black metal, a kind of evil sounding metal that makes heavy metal sound like a blues cover band and makes all other kinds of rock and roll sound like the theme song from Barney. Okay. <laughs> but the sound isn't the only thing that's evil. So are their souls. <laughs> This is played out in ways that are maybe a little easy to laugh at from a safe geographic and time-space continuum distance. Take, for instance, their unironic approach to painting themselves to look like corpses or throwing severed pig's heads at fans who came to see them perform until (laughs) everyone left before Mayhem even played a song. Songs with titles like Chainsaw Gutfuck. (laughs) This earnest embrace of, quote, evil has also led to things that are impossible for posers like me to sneer at, like the suicide of their lead singer, nicknamed Dead, uh, when he was very young, like in his late teens or early 20s. 22. Oof, that's just a lot for me and my personal history. Okay, and the way in which his bandmates Euronymous treated his body when he discovered it also was no like laughing matter. He posed Dead's body and took pictures with it. He collected pieces of his skull to make necklaces out of it and ate some of his brains. According to his friend, he did this so he could claim cannibalism, not that he actually was a cannibal, but so that he could claim that he was. But according to Euronymous, you can't really be mad at him for being evil because he makes his evilness known to everyone and wears it on his dirty leather sleeve. What you see is what you get. And here lies the main contradiction, the main narrative tension in our story. Euronymous, the founder and leader of Mayhem and main character in our story, wants to have his Satan cake and eat it too. On one (laughs) hand, his quote, evilness is in perfectly constructed direct opposition to mainstream Christian Norman... Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> this is a good sentence. You're doing I feel a great like. job. On one hand, his, quote, evilness is in perfectly constructed direct opposition to the mainstream Christian normie culture of Norway. But since he's crossed over to the dark side, he wants everyone who crosses over with him to treat him like he's their hero or the good guy, if you will. So <laughs> That's an interesting take. Well, that's what I'm here for. I like this. I'm very Next interesting. Picks. I'm intellectual. So <laughs> our story picks up shortly after dead suicide. Almost immediately in the aftermath of that, Mayhem's uh, evil credibility skyrockets even higher, and Euronymous uses the momentum to start a metal record shop slash slash record label slash lecture hall slash party zone the record store is doing okay and attracting its fair share of young people not too many posers but (laughs) the record label is so far a complete failure to launch and the party zone has become a disgusting pit of grossness even by their standards (laughs) pretty much from the beginning it's also important to note that multiple members of mayhem have come and gone over the years with one member just recently quitting after seeing how Euronymous behaved upon finding dead's body as this part two begins there are two members remaining including euronymous which by my uh math unless you're daft punk or something that's really not enough for a band (laughs) (laughs) Um, but a new addition has just entered the picture a young man who apparently is ready to crank up the evilness to his most evil evilness yet a young man named sir murder viking spinal lighter fluid or something like that i can't remember his name um oh and a very important thing is despite being responsible for leading the world in black metal both sonically and culturally mayhem still hasn't released an actual album (laughs) muriel 
Valhalla awaits. <laughs> Nick, that was such a good recap. Look at Ding. I feel very supported by my wife. Okay. It feels good to be impressed. You're very funny. Mm. Okay, ready? Yes. Right. Okay, so it's 1992 in Norway. The black metal scene is exploding in Oslo, like Nick was talking about. Euronymous mm-hmm. is lord of the scene at his record shop, Helvete or Hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, most Norwegians are baffled by the emergence of this extreme Satan-esque subculture attracting their youth. Okay, mm-hmm. and far away from Oslo, on the west coast of Norway, another youth starts to feel the pull. Mm. Bergen, Norway is a gorgeous coastal city, the second biggest in Norway. In 1993, about 200,000 people lived in the picturesque wooden houses at the heart of the fjords. And do you know what a fjord is? No, I think you said it last episode and I just nodded along. No, well, no I didn't idea. say it, but oh. I said the word. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. You said the word. So like, they're hmm. like these really long, deep narrow sea inlets that are surrounded by cliffs so they're really really beautiful and yeah they're only in mm-hmm. a couple places in the world and one of the places is norway but they're 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 shockingly beautiful oh god so when we talk about yeah bergen for instance but the whole country bergen is just like a wharf yeah that's like filled with wooden houses yeah. And they're all painted these beautiful like Easter egg colors. And then there are these like fjords that are just the backdrop, this dramatic backdrop of the city. So it's really pretty. (sighs) I mean, I've watched that movie, uh, The Worst Person in the World or You're the Worst Person in the World. I can't remember. It was like nominated for an Oscar this year. It's from Norway. takes place in Oslo. And everything out there is just amazing. Even the clothes in this movie, I was watching them just wearing like a T-shirt. And I'm like, how well constructed can a T-shirt be? And they're like (laughs) shirts and shoes. It's like we're so used to like crappy fast fashion or whatever. (laughs) Everything in this movie, I was like, oh, my God. And their apartments were all amazing anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the wooden houses are iconic and have also led to the city burning down so many times. Mm. It's Wikipedia. <laughs> it's Wikipedia page has an entire uh. section titled fire. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. By my count, yeah. it's around 15 significant fires, including at least two, maybe three. I was having trouble figuring that out. But uh-huh. at least two, maybe three times where it burned completely or almost completely to the ground. Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. So right. in this beautiful port city surrounded by water, 12-year-old Varg Vikernes started listening to Iron Maiden. Yes. By 14, Varg was playing guitar, and by 17, he was recording music for his solo black metal music project, Burzum. Burzum uh-huh. means darkness in a language J.R.R. Tolkien made up for the Lord of the Rings. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's yeah. like Vulcan or something. Or no, that's Star Trek. <laughs> Yeah, but you know. Yeah, it's called something something. something. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever. It is. It, it's Lord of the Rings. That's the name. <laughs> That's not the name of the language. Okay, anyways, I get it. Okay. <laughs> so in nineteen ninety two, Varg, who was seventeen years old, made the seven hour drive to Oslo and ostensibly to hell. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> so nice. when Varg hit the Oslo black metal scene, he was mm-hmm. like around 18. He was straight edge, serious as a heart attack, and known for drinking an absurd amount of milk around the record shop. So for those oh. of us who don't know, straight edge is like no booze, no alcohol. Yeah. I mean, no booze, no drugs or anything right. like that. So he didn't drink. But he used to. He was known for like drinking cartons of milk all the time. That's hardcore, man. Most of the straight edge kids I knew were also vegan. Yeah, those kind of went hand in hand. It felt like. If I drank a lot of milk, I would be so sick. Okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Varg never really moved to Oslo. Mm-hmm. He basically started out just making this long drive from Bergen to Oslo periodically. And then while he was in Oslo playing music, he would crash in that grimy, gross sex party basement. <laughs> the one that they just were like, this is too gross. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah. So that was like, sleep there. that's where he used to sleep. Okay. Uh, and then he, because of that became really fast friends with the cooler, older Euronymous. Okay. Right. All right. Euronymous, super into Varg. He eagerly signed Varg and his solo project Burzum to his death, like silence music label. So mm-hmm. he was like, I want you boy. Yeah. Get on my label. I got you. <laughs> now this was a big break for Varg, but there wasn't much money in the deal. Mm-hmm. And in a later interview, Varg remembers having to borrow money from his mom to help cover studio costs. So uh-huh. <laughs> it was like the black metal or one of the top black metal labels, you know, yeah, the new right. emerging ones. And he's yeah. like, yeah, but they don't have any money. <laughs> sure. But regardless of that, the good news keeps on coming. After Dead Suicide and Necro Butcher quitting over Euronymous's like you said, taking pictures of his body and making necklaces out of his skull. Mm -hmm. Mayhem was again down to two members, Euronymous and Hellhammer. Euronymous had briefly hired a bassist to cover for Necro Butcher, but he quit really quickly after Euronymous encouraged his followers to burn a cross in his yard. Oh, I forgot about that. (laughs) So they did for a second have a full band, but then that guy bounced because he's like, I don't know what you guys are up for. (laughs) I'm out. Yeah. So now, despite being kings in the black metal scene, Mayhem still hadn't recorded their first album, and they needed new blood ASAP. So by midsummer 1992, Varg was hired as the new bassist for Mayhem, and he was going by the name Count Grishnak. Nice. Very good. Euronymous also added a Hungarian vocalist and a man named Snor Westfold Rooch, a.k.a. Blackthorn. Uh, he hired that kid for rhythm guitar. So this all went down uh-huh. in hell. They finally get the band together right around the time that the first of 22 churches in Norway were burned in acts of arson. Mm. So as soon as the band gets together, on June 6, 1992, a 12th century Gothic cathedral and national monument called Fantoff Stave Church burned to the ground. And Euronymous was again hyping up one of his notorious bandmates. Similarly to how he publicly claimed Mayhem's former singer Dead died of suicide because of his commitment to the black metal scene. Yeah. He spread the rumor that their new bassist, Count Grishnak, was behind the arson. So was it a rumor or did he do it? Well, the Count did not deny it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Sure. (laughs) He absolutely 
you know, they're rolling with it. It's just, uh, I mean, I, I get that this is what I was talking about earlier, but it's just so ridiculous to me to be like care about posers, but then also care what people think of you. It's, I know, but you know, yeah. if you remember being 22, it was like, what were we doing? I think this is more like when you're like 15. I'm sorry. I was really stupid when I was 20. No, that's when we were hooking up. And that was when you were at your coolest, actually. When no. We when we finally got together. Yeah, you were at the height of being cool then. Uh, <laughs> I thought I thought you were uh, immediately way better at, at that point than you were previously. Okay, anyways. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. I just liked you when you were 22 and decided to I know. Liked I me. liked you too. And yeah. I'm saying like there's lots of 22-year-olds who are doing great things. Yeah. Yeah. There's a contingent of us who are still like, you know, figuring ourselves out, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's okay to say. <laughs> so, while Count Grishnak commuted from Bergen and crashed in the gross party sex basement in Helvete, mm-hmm. the band started working on their first album, De Mysterious Dom Satanis. In and that's Latin, and I don't know if I said it right. Oh, great. In nice. uh, but they started working on their debut album yeah. in earnest, mm-hmm. and as they're working on this album, more churches burned. On August first, nineteen ninety-two, the second church burned. That was called the Revheim Church, and on that same month, the nineteen-year-old drummer for the seminal black metal band Emperor, which was kind of like a co, they, they're kind mm-hmm. of co- coming up at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He stabbed a man to death to see what it would feel like. So Bard Ethan, a.k.a. Faust, was the drummer for Emperor, Uh another huge black metal band in Norway. Uh Faust had his first contact with Euronymous at the age of 13 when the two exchanged letters. So Faust was living in this teeny, tiny, isolated town of about 500 people in Norway, Mm -hmm. over 400 miles from Oslo. And he said, you know, Basically, when they became regular pen pals, Mm -hmm. it really opened up his world. You know, he was 13 years old. Yeah, right. And Euronymous would send him these like really long, you know, exorbitant letters. (laughs) He was like, it was cool. Man, you sent a lot of letters. Yeah, yeah. Um, But he was a great pen pal. So Faust met Euronymous and Dead, the former singer of Mayhem, Mm -hmm. in person for the first time outside of an Anthrax concert in 1989 when he was just 16. Anthrax rocks. So he met up with the pair. They were like selling albums outside of the concert. Mm -hmm. And he just said he remembered them being very cool, very down to earth, kind of quiet. You know, he bought an album and he said he just fell in love with Mayhem, the band, because it was the most violent music he had ever heard. (laughs) Plus, at the time, everyone Uh was super mysterious, and they didn't do any interviews or release studio albums or even do concerts. Right. So he was like, they're really committed to like not being like posers. Yeah, just selling like dirty cassettes or whatever. Right. Yeah, that's cool. I get it. So Faust became an early fixture in the scene. After that, he played drums for a few bands before landing his spot drumming for Emperor. And during that early time, he would also crash at the mayhem at mayhem's practice house in the woods so the this devil is before, house yes yeah. exactly so this is before the record shop he was there mm-hmm. at the very beginning as like a young teenager that is uh man i would say that's awesome you know but then also we know that what he's being indoctrinated into is leading him to stabbing someone to death so it's not awesome it's just what it is i know i'm just know? dealing with the emotions <laughs> it's the, what it is the contradictions are ripe 
Or rife. Anyways. <laughs> what is it? What's the saying? Contradictions are rife. All right. So Faust. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know either. So that's So Faust is living in uh-huh. the devil's house uh-huh. and he was actually there when the night that the band made all those rotting pig's heads on stakes. Mm. So he was there when they all like prepared them for their big debut concert. <laughs> the arts and crafts concert. And he, uh, and he said uh, some random guy ate a piece of one of the heads to be a badass. Uh-huh. And he got really sick because they were like not, they were like rotten. Yeah, was, yeah. So that guy was like puking everywhere. <laughs> so the first live mayhem show Faust ever saw was that really crazy 1990 concert when mm-hmm. they threw the pig's heads yeah. and then the lead singer dead cut himself really bad on stage. Mm-hmm. Faust later said, you know, he didn't know dead very well, but he only remembers how much dead hated cats. And one time witnessed him running around the backyard, trying to stab a stray cat with a knife. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, at the time in the scene, everyone knew dead was eventually going to kill himself. He said yeah. it was just a part of the scene that that was like something that was common knowledge. I Ugh. guess. But after dead passed away, he did see a shift in Euronymous. He really felt Euronymous was using Dead's passing to push the black metal scene further into evil satanic vibes. He yeah. was saying like it seemed like an inevitable thing, but then when it happened, the whole scene really changed and ramped up in this specific way. Mm-hmm. But despite all that, Faust was heavily entrenched in the scene, right? He was still mm-hmm. playing drums for Emperor and in 1992, when Euronymous opened the record shop, he worked for Euronymous. So he was like a ma- he was totally entrenched in this world. So he sounds like he recognizes he recognized the change and liked it. Yeah, leaned mm-hmm. into it, or at mm-hmm. least it didn't deter him. Yeah. Well, it seems like he committed a little more. He's like, oh, okay, now I'll work for you. Yeah, right now I'll mm-hmm. work for you. Now he's a central member in the shop. He's a drummer for Emperor. Yeah. It's a huge band. He's really right. like in the scene. So on August 21st, 1992, this is just at the end of summer, Faust was visiting family in the small ski resort town of Lillehammer. He went out for a drink by himself and then took a shortcut through a park known for cruising. So while he's walking through the park, this guy comes over and he tries to pick him up. Mm -hmm. And Faust is like, sure, man. Why don't we walk into the woods? So the guy leads him into the woods. He walks really, really deep away from people. And this is actually a, a major feature, I guess, in Norway is that mm-hmm. from what I've read, I think it might even be like a type of zoning regulation mm-hmm. that you have to be able to see woods from where you are. like the, At all times? Like the roads are made so like, you're never surrounded by roads. Like there has to be like a woods component, like all over the place. Interesting. Uh, Anyway, I I didn't really understand it, but I think the idea is like, there's some sort of thing where they protect woods need to just be woods and they need to be all over the place. So in this park, in the middle of this town, there's still a big thick, wild ass woods right by there. So they walk, that's just a normal thing. Yeah. So they walk deep into the woods and when they were hidden away, Faust took out his knife and stabbed the man 37 times Jesus. in a crazy frenzy. Yeah. And this is a very specific type of crime that actually isn't that common that people do these frenzy killings. Yeah. Um, and 37 times is like an absurd amount of times right. to stab somebody. That's right. not a normal serial killer thing to do. It's not a normal like 
crime of passion. Like yeah. it's not, that's not like a, that's a very significant thing. Mm-hmm. Faust maintains even today, he had no motive for the stabbing whatsoever yeah. and no remorse. When he was interviewed for the book, Lords of Chaos, Faust said, quote, no, I didn't have any remorse. I have to stand up for what I've done and do my time. There's no remorse. I took his life and I paid for it. It's not a big deal, at least not in my opinion. Hmm. So that's kind mm-hmm. of like a great example of the logic of this group of teens and early 20s dudes living in this world. What kind of sentence did he get? Uh, he got 14 years. I think he served nine. It's a, just a different system out that there. That does not seem like a lot. <sighs> well, we're American. All yeah. right. After the murder. <laughs> and there was no like um, hate crime involved in it. He didn't do no. it because the guy was gay or something like that. There was no sort he of He like, said no. Yeah. I mean, like the, from the interviews I've read, he said no. There's also, I can't remember which band, but there was a member of one of the prominent black metal bands mm-hmm. that came out mm-hmm. like later in life. And he said that Faust was the first person that reached out to him and was like, Hey man, you know, yeah, I've got your back or whatever. So he's like the metal scene. There's a lot of <laughs> white supremacy in this scene. And we'll kind of see. Oh, you haven't mentioned that. Okay. So there's, <laughs> there's, I'm not saying that they're like not like they're blameless, but yeah, in yeah, this yeah. particular instance, you know, Faust said it wasn't because he was gay. And then also there's members of the community that say. Sure. That you know, he wasn't hateful in it, that way. Like that he's just basically like, you know, he's just basically like, well, I stabbed him. Yeah. And then they put me in jail and I'm serving the time. So I don't understand what the problem is here. Right. That's like right. basically what it comes down to. Okay. And he never did it again. <laughs> I guess that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I don't know man it's the craziest thing did he I, say he liked it he said he wanted to do what it, he wanted to do it to see what it felt like was he like yeah it was cool no he said it was like he it was really an intense experience like he stabbed this guy all these times but the guy this is horrible but he was yeah. like didn't die right away and so then he uh, like tried to walk away and the guy was making noises and he came back and he like kicked the guy and it was really horrifically brutal yeah but part of it was like the guy didn't die as fast as he thought it was going to happen and so he just said by the time the whole thing was done you know he was physically exhausted and then covered in blood and had to walk through the city back to his parents house and nobody saw him it was just some luck of the draw he said he was nervous like he didn't want to get caught so Mm. it wasn't like he was out there like super pumped up there was definitely something about like blacking out almost and Mm. then like being like i i just got home you know i i took a bath i cleaned up and just the luck of the draw nobody saw him but they caught him pretty quickly no oh uh he made it back to his parents house cleaned up wasn't discovered the body was found the next day but ethan or aka faust wasn't arrested for over a year, hmm. despite the fact that everyone over at Helvetate, the record shop, knew he did it. Oh, so he was bragging about it? He said something, and then Euronymous definitely said something, and then yeah. Count Grishnak definitely said something. Mm-hmm, so people were mm-hmm. definitely out there saying something. Right, right. Uh, the police just didn't make a connection. There just wasn't really any evidence. He took the knife with him. There was no, there were no witnesses. Mm-hmm. Nobody saw anything that happened, and there was no connection between 
Faust and the man that he murdered. So there was no nothing for them to really go off of. Yeah, so what happened? So we just keep trucking. Two days after the stabbing on August 23rd, Count Grishnak and Euronymous, after they heard about the stabbing, take Faust out to go burn down a church. And the three of them burn down <laughs> oh. the Holman Cullen Chapel together. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, that's, that's how it ended. <laughs> So by the end of 1992, four more churches would be burned. In a later interview with the Guardian, Faust, who like, you know, we said it looked up to Euronymous since he was a young teen, said that as the scene became more violent, including what he was doing. Yeah, yeah. He the saw, scene. Right, exactly. He saw Euronymous kind of struggle with the notoriety of others. So... Oh, like he was getting jealous? Well, it felt like, at least from Faust's perspective, yeah. after the stabbing and when the churches started, church burning started escalating, everyone was kind of out-crazying Euronymous, you know? Mm -hmm. And he said, quote, it became very difficult for Euronymous. I think he felt like he had to prove he could be a part of it and not just in the background. And that felt like a very strong drumbeat for him moving forward. Yeah. Ugh. So as time went on and the black metal scene grew, the mentor-mentee relationship between Count Grishnak and Euronymous developed into one of peers, right, bandmates, mm -hmm. and then allegedly one of rivals. So the Count was five years younger than Euronymous. <laughs> you can't call him the Count. I'm going to. I <laughs> like count. it. The Count was five years younger than Euronymous, and he had a big personality. He was mm -hmm. handsome, young, with pouty lips and a cleft chin. He was like a super like good looking dude. Yeah. And he was fresh in the scene with his own vibe. For instance, he rarely wore the corpse paint uh -huh. that the band had popularized. He would come out like bare face. <laughs> yeah. And while Euronymous struggled to put out Mayhem's debut album, the count was like effortlessly prolific playing yeah. bass for mayhem while releasing two whole albums as his solo act Burzum on Euronymous's label. Mm -hmm. So he's out there just doing stuff. Faust actually said at one point, you know, he had this really obsessive quality count Grishnak did mm -hmm. where like, you know, he's the straight edge dude in the scene. Mm -hmm. He has like a really strong opinions about stuff and he kind of was obsessive. So if something, if he did something well in a night, like let's say an idea, like a thought or philosophy, cause they're all sitting around spouting philosophies about <laughs> Satan and stuff, yeah, yeah. or like, I don't know, like a piece of music that he would then find opportunities to try to do it 10 or 15 times in the same night. Mm -hmm. You know, once people saw it was good, he was like really trying to do it over and over he again. He sounds like a stand up comic trying to yeah, <laughs> workshop material. It's like, Ooh, I got this new bit, man. I'm trying to get any stage time for me. Yeah. And, and Faust kind of got the feeling that Count Grishnak you know, had a similar obsession when it came to Euronymous's popularity. Like he was kind of, you know, obsessed with Euronymous, feeling that Euronymous was a poser, you know, mm -hmm. really like latching on to this idea. Yeah. Right? Euronymous, on the other hand, you know, he's still this central figure in the scene and he has this super popular record shop, but it's a financially failing record store and his music label was hemorrhaging money. He was also 
presumably dealing with a level of competition he hadn't dealt with before, right? Because up until this point, Euronymous had been the most extreme dude, or at least one of the most, mostly owing to the way he used death suicide to grow his po- personal notoriety, right? Yeah, totally. He's got the necklaces. He made it a death, dead skull. Uh, rumors he, that he ate dead's brains, right. like this kind of thing, right? So he's, he, I mean, this was less than a year ago. Right, because like, he opened the shop like two months after dead suicide. Yeah, or right. Ridiculous. So he's hot off of this thing being yeah. like, I'm the king and I'm handing out necklaces of skull pieces and I'm doing this thing. Sorry, now you're in the shadow of this burning church. Right, exactly. And this man who's been stabbed to death and all right. this stuff. Yeah. And in the escalation, Euronymous is just tied to this failing record store and increasingly feel this pressure to back his evil violent rhetoric with actions. Mm, damn, that is... Oh, uh, okay, sorry, keep going. <laughs> I just hate that so much. That, like, peer pressure, like, crime and and tragedy born out of dumb peer pressure is just, like, so icky. It's so regrettable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true in retrospect. But yeah. at the time, you know, like, this is the world that they created and yeah. the set of ethics they created and the lifestyle, and this is the thing they were committed to. It's like the harder you commit, the more real it becomes, you know? Yeah, I just feel so deeply immature. You're saying that now, yeah. and I agree with you. Yeah. And I understand that feeling. But I also think it's interesting that the, it's creating a, a whole world. I mean, it's not yeah. just immaturity. It's like these guys are really trying to cr- like manufacture a whole new set of guidelines for living, you know, yeah. and commit to them with no irony. You we know? haven't used the word cult yet with any of this. It feels a little bit like a cult. You know, I think that the power is too decentralized Mm -hmm. for it to be a cult. It would be a cult of personality if Euronymous didn't struggle with keeping control. But the thing is, is like, they're not about having a boss, you know, like a lot of this is just oppositional. It's like, everything is defined by like an oppositional stance. So if like the world says, you know, there's a leader in a group, then you say we have no leader. Right. But here's Euronymous. He's basically the managerial elite. He like owns the record shop. Yeah. But he's, he's totally losing power. I know. And and that is actually more consistent with the like ideology of the group than if he was like maintaining the leader. So I don't think that there's any kind of cult. There's not really a cult-like okay, thing to that. that sure. Right? So at any rate, the scene is in a state of flux, right? The burning of Fantoff Church in June of 1992 had added this rocket fuel to the scene, but it also opened a big old can of worms. So what the lead singer of Faust Band Emperor mm-hmm. did an interview, and he said like, kind of about the time, he said, quote, there was no discipline in the scene anymore. Like earlier around the shop, you had to be kind of accepted. You came here and if you were trusted, if they knew that you were serious in your views, you were accepted. There was a lot of respect for the shop. And now I'm putting that in parentheses, my word, but now Mm -hmm. people came here with the corpse paint on, which in some cases was quite stupid as it was daytime and people were out shopping. (laughs) So basically he's like, it used to be like really real at the beginning. And what's funny about that- now four months later, it's gone to shit. (laughs) Right, I mean, but that's exactly what he's talking about. He's like, all of a sudden now, it's like people just (laughs) 
come to the shop, you know, and nobody is being vetted. Nobody knows who anybody is. There's just like a huge influx of people, right? Yeah. God forbid it's just a store that people can walk into. (laughs) Browse the records by (laughs) torchlight. Come on. All right. So at this time is really when the scene developed a central ideology. So, Mm. I mean, obviously... Like you said, it's like four months in, three months in or something like that. But this is when the central ideology was formed. From what I can tell, the group leaned into Satanism, but not as we know it as generally like the Church of Satan Mm -hmm. that we know today. The Church of Satan that we know today identifies as skeptical atheists. Mm -hmm. That's the whole perspective. So it's not really a a Satan worshiping group. It's an atheist group. Yeah. What the black metal scene was doing in Norway in the early 90s was more like an inversion of Christianity, Mm -hmm. like basically just doing the opposite of whatever was in the Bible. So it's a a kind of a different brand. Right. It's like, watch, (laughs) love my neighbor. Watch this. I hate you, neighbor. It is, right? It's a sort of anti-organized religion mixed with just doing the opposite of traditional Christian values. Yeah. Faust said, this is a quote from Faust, he said, many people were really into it because of the music black metal philosophy working against christianity and organized religion and he also said quote the idea was we would make an organization which was mostly basing its action on illegal activities and not legal ones like just the opposite right right and euronymous said of the black metal philosophy he said quote I don't think people should respect each other. I don't want to see trend people respecting me. I want them to hate and to fear. If people don't accept our ideas as their own, they can fuck off because then they belong to a musical scene which has nothing to do with ours. They could just as well be Madonna fans. There is an abyss between us and the rest. Remember... One of the hardcore punk rules is that you must be open-minded. So we must be careful and avoid being open-minded ourselves. <laughs> okay. So like those quotes uh-huh. help you understand like it's uh-huh. just the opposite. That's yeah, most right. of the stuff is like So did these rebels have a cause? Was did he did he ever talk about growing up in the church and how he was ostracized or felt like less of a human because of Christianity or anything. You want to know what's so crazy? What? I did some research about Christianity and Norway to talk to you about that. And I yeah. could not figure out where to insert it in this. Cause I was yeah. like, is this boring? Uh-huh. But you asked the question right when I was going to talk about it. Oh, which tight. Is tight. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we planned that. That's so wild. Well, I don't know. We spend every moment of every day together. <laughs> and when we're not recording this podcast, there's a pretty good chance it will be talking about the podcast so. okay so i'll read you i'll read you my section okay, uh-huh. this thing. so um <laughs> basically you know i do think it's worth noting the satanism adjacent ideology wasn't happening in a vacuum so mm-hmm. i poked around wikipedia just to see what the religious culture was like in norway at the time mm-hmm. to see if there was some like counterpoint to this thinking if there's something to rebel against or what was going yeah, on were these people oppressed by christianity right so i don't know if this really will crystallize that or this is not really a full answer uh-huh. but norway is interesting because it's kind of both 
more and less religious than I imagined it would be given like this whole like Satanism. You kind of touched on this last episode. Right, right. So like for instance, Norway didn't meaningfully separate church and state until the mid 2010s. Mm-hmm. And most parliamentary officials up until that point and the government workers were actually required to be members of the church of Norway. Mm-hmm. So like that's for our country. That's like completely obviously different. The evangelical Lutheran church of Norway is considered the state church. So therefore all of the church of Norway's clergymen were viewed as employees of the state. Mm -hmm. So there's a really strong interwoven fabric between state church and state. Got it. Yeah. But despite all this, the actual culture and the people just aren't very churchy. Like according Uh to the Lords of Chaos, in the early 90s, about 88% of Norway identified as Christian, but only 3% of the population actually regularly went to church. Uh-huh. Like, that's a huge difference, right? Yeah. And, like, the joke in the culture is you go to church three times in life, baptism, marriage, and death. Sure. So you live in the church, but, like, you just never go otherwise. Sure, sure. So there's an argument that, well... Christianity loomed large in Norwegian laws and culture. There wasn't anything really like zingy about it for the youth. Like they were told what was right and wrong, but there wasn't a very deep connection to why. You know what I mean? So like Christianity dictated a lot of the laws and the culture. Mm -hmm. But if you don't go to church, then you don't really like have some sort of dialogue about why they're. I mean, were they teaching the Bible in public schools? You know, I didn't. I'm I'm not sure actually. And were some of the laws repressive or you know really not really? I mean, it's, in ways it's a pretty socially progressive interpretation of the Bible. Like it's uh-huh. not you know it wasn't particularly oppressive in any way. It just is. It just is a presence, you know. Uh-huh. As far as I've read, I mean, I'm not Norwegian, so I can't right. tell. Right, of, of course, I get it. Yeah. This is a quote from a professor of theology from Norway. He did um, an interview for the book Lords of Chaos. His name is Jacob Jervil. Mm-hmm. So he said this. He said, quote, when young people encounter the flat moralism of the church, they get the feeling that it doesn't make sense. It is a very idyllic world that is preached about in the sermons. Music awakens powerful, destructive forces in its listeners, forces that are not dealt with in church preaching, where they never received an answer to the question about what evil is. Instead, they get rather idyllic, utopian sermons about sin. Mm -hmm. Young people don't feel that this is relevant, so they become alienated. It is counterproductive. We end up with a lost generation. Young people might see the satanic version of Christianity as more realistic than the one they have been taught by the church. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like, obviously, this is just one guy's opinion, mm-hmm. but it kind of helps to speak to the greater question of why. You know, it, it, it's an interesting idea to think about, like, this idea that if you don't engage by, like, engaging in your religion and engaging in conversations and, you know, sermons and reading the Bible and stuff like that. It it just feels like it's some, it's flat. It's like somebody dictating something to you and you either accept it or you don't accept it. Well, it's also interesting to me that what he's kind of saying is, uh, the devil was never 
you know, illustrated for them or like evil is never described. So they're just putting together this thing from like Tolkien. And then you throw in some like ancient, you know, Norse Viking mythology. And then like, they're like, they're creating their own version of the devil. That's like pulling from science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, all these different things. And I guess white supremacy. I don't know, man. Well, I'm, I'm touching on it. It's like people, a lot of this story, just for the record, is, you know, nobody knows the truth because so much of it happened, you know, before the internet and... In a little store. In a little store. <laughs> yeah. And so a lot of it are just personal accounts to people that survived that time mm-hmm. and that are still around and wanting to talk about it. So yeah. a lot of it is colored by a perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think that... I think you're right. And I think the thing that I pull from that quote is that I think that they probably were told there is the devil and these are the sins, but I think they were not told why. I think that Mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. that's a big part of it. It's like not really engaging in what this means for your life. And then when you're going somewhere and you can feel fear and pain and like these really strong heightened emotions and like, you know, evil, like when you can kind of create a world that gives you those feelings and experiences, Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. like such a, like a like a red hot thing as opposed to just kind of being told what's good and bad for your entire life yeah you know? right yeah yeah you're so, feeling it you're living it yeah. yeah i mean i don't know i just thought that was kind of interesting yeah um you know and in terms of this greater question of why like why norway why was this such an intense counterculture reaction mm-hmm. nobody actually knows the answer to that there's some theories i came across like people say maybe because black metal's this youth focused movement and Norwegian Mm. kids. We said this before, were so physically distanced from the rest of Europe. They didn't have the frame of reference to understand that these formative bands like Venom were kind of tongue in cheek. Mm -hmm. So they took all the Satanism stuff like way, way literally. Yeah. Or maybe some people think it's because, you know, half like, I don't know, a chunk of the country is above the Arctic circle. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are these just very dark, long winters Mm -hmm. with no daylight. (laughs) And then there's all this like primal forests in Norway. And, and, And so like that might just have been something that sparked this deep connection to this mythology and like dark evil, like, you know, pole of these, ancient forests well you know? and cool musical and creative stuff is happening to with young people all over the globe at the time yeah totally yeah uh the lords of chaos theorize that it just could have been an extreme case of blase teenagers yeah you know so they talk about how like norway you know is a really wealthy relatively a super wealthy country yeah in the west and they're quality their standard of living is just very very high i know so <laughs> yeah maybe kids wanted to inject a little more controversy into their world so they gravitated towards these severe raw primitive music and these satanic vibes totally i remember in the last episode you made a comment about how euronymous's parents like helped him start his business and i made some snarky hater ass comment about how he was a rich kid yeah but as soon as that came out of my lips i was like i don't know i think probably it wasn't that much money for them to do it. And like, it doesn't mean he was a rich kid because his parents could help him start a business in that culture. Like in that movie I was talking about worst person in the world. Like the guy is a barista in a cafe and this takes place in modern times and his, their, his apartment is gorgeous. (laughs) And then the other guy she's with is like a, like a underground comic book artist who is 
heralded and successful and people care about his work and he has like openings and stuff and he lives in a almost identical apartment yeah right you know? yeah anyway yeah it's interesting i yeah. mean i mean that's what they say is that part of the world has this like standard of living it's just different than, yeah. than ours yeah. yeah so that's kind of what they think is like maybe these kids were like oh man we just want to do something insane <laughs> <laughs> i get it uh I'll, another person you know i think one of the other theories i read is like the arsons might have just simply happened because historical churches were made of wood you know there's so many structures mm -hmm. in norway made of wood yeah. so burning down churches seems like the easiest way to make a really strong point <laughs> that is uh i hate the idea of old buildings being arsoned i hate it i know i, know. I hate it and okay. you know the last theory is just maybe it just could have been they had a couple of really good bands that just incited a revolution there was just something about the music that she, did it right yeah, yeah. Um, but regardless of all of that, signs of implosion started almost as soon as the scene took off. Yeah. <laughs> so of course, what of caused course. the downfall of the relationship between Count Grishnak and Euronymous, according to the only survivor, Count Grishnak, was a death threat that he received from Euronymous. So the Count, to this day, still believes he mm -hmm. acted in self-defense when murdering Euronymous, or at least preemptive self-defense, which is not actually a thing and did lead to him spending well over a decade in prison for murder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're like, uh, preemptive, preemptive self-defense <laughs> is not a thing. My man. Yeah. <laughs> also, you know, aside from the death threat, Euronymous is labeled death-like silence productions was a mess euronymous was in negotiation with a bunch of bands to produce albums mm -hmm. but he was just notoriously terrible with money yeah so the count and euronymous obviously had beef stemming from this the rumors were basically that the count had borrowed money from his mom and lent it to euronymous to pay for producing a burzum al album with the idea that he would be paid back when the album sold mm -hmm. but by the time the album was finished Euronymous didn't have the money to actually release the album, like to do the cop, <laughs> yeah. make the can't, copies. We can't press any copies right. or and put up any posters a, or again, anything. like pre-internet, pre yeah. like whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So not only was his mom not getting her money, but there was no physical album. Mm -hmm. And also Euronymous had owed the count royalties for another album that he'd produce under death like silence. So the count at the time just wanted to jump to another label. He was getting fed up. Mm-hmm. So we reached the end of the summer and from September to December, four more churches burned and Mayhem finally started getting some of their songs for the album in the can. Mm -hmm. So churches are burning down and Mayhem is finally making their debut album. The final plan, allegedly, mm -hmm. was that Mayhem would release their debut album on the same day that Euronymous and Count Grishnak planned on blowing up the Nidoros Cathedral. Okay? Oh. So the photo of the cathedral would be the album cover uh -huh. of their debut album. And then they would blow up the cathedral. <laughs> and this specific cathedral is actually the burial place for the patron saint of Norway. <laughs> Oh my uh, God. King Olaf II. So it's like the big cathedral, right? Yeah. Now, in January of 1993, 
Count Grishnak blew up his spot instead. <laughs> his own re- his own record store? <laughs> no, he no Count Grishnak didn't own the record. Oh, store. sorry, sorry, Count Grishnak. <laughs> so what? Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> it was just a joke. He uh, blew up his spot, meaning like. He kind of outed himself. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah, not yeah. literally. He, yeah, like, he hey, man, quit blowing up the spot. Yeah, right. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> I thought that joke would land harder than it did. <laughs> well, it's very hard for me to know when you're going to disperse slang that actually sort of works. Uh, you know, everything you have to put, <laughs> have is like a, a fail system of like checkpoints to get through when you say Shut things up. like that. <laughs> so, okay, so I'm going to say it again that? and go to my next part. Okay. In January 1993, yeah. Count Grishnak blew up his spot instead. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Good joke. Got it. <laughs> so for reasons not entirely clear, in early January of 1993, Count Grishnak invited a journalist to his loft apartment in Bergen for mm. an interview. So in a living room covered in Nazi paraphernalia and satanic stuff with the windows blacked out with chunks of carpet, the count told a journalist from the major Norwegian newspaper Bergens Tiende that the black metal scene was responsible for at least eight church burnings. And he also implied that he himself had also killed a man from Lillehammer. So he just, he was like... (sighs) He really yeah. outed a lot of things. He just said, I know what happened with all this stuff. Plus, I know this guy was murdered, right? And actually, the Count later said about that interview, he said, quote, I said, I know who burned the churches to the journalist. And I was making a lot of fun with him because we told him on the phone, we have a gun. And if you try to bring anybody, we'll shoot you. Come meet me at midnight and all this. It was very theatrical. <laughs> well, at least he's at least he's spot on about that part. And then he continues. He was a Christian and I fed him a lot of amusing info. Very amusing. Of course, he twisted the words like usual. After he left, we lay on the floor laughing (laughs) so he does this whole interview right Mm -hmm. and the count in the interview gave the journalist details about the church arsons that hadn't been released to the press Mm -hmm. so the paper goes straight to the police before publishing it and you know the police confirm the details and that kind of goes on behind closed doors Mm -hmm. the count and his buddies assumed this would be like this little back page article now the massive front page spread (laughs) (laughs) was published on January 20th with the headline, quote, we lit the fires. (laughs) And the photo, uh, the photo for the article was a photo of Count Grishnak barely covering his face with two gigantic knives. Great. So this gets released, uh-huh. and by this time, the count had already been arrested. Uh-huh. Police okay. had found his address on a flyer for his band Burzum and just gone to his house and arrested him. <laughs> yeah. So even after he'd been arrested, the count was just super confident there was no evidence to convict him. Yeah. During questioning, apparently at one point, he told Bergen police that the next interrogation, he would break down and lay all his cards on the table. And then the next day he walked in, placed a deck of cards on the table and said, quote, now I have laid my cards on the table. <laughs> okay. So he's not above a dad joke either. I don't know. I think they thought they were inventing everything, you know? <laughs> yeah. Prop comedy. 
and then also during this time when uh-huh. a church fire police task force set up a headquarters in Bergen to investigate Count Grishnak and like the comings and goings of his apartment, mm-hmm. according to police, Count Grishnak busted into their room at the Hotel Norg wearing a suit of chain mail with two knives stuck in his belt and flanked by two death metal heads, like two guys. <laughs> yeah. So what he happened? walks in and he demands that police stop their investigation into the black metal scene. And the investigators, of course, were like, what? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> they said, okay, well, you don't have the authority to ask us to stop this investigation. And so he just looked at them and then threw up a Nazi salute and then left with his entourage. <laughs> so like, if you could think of just the most, uh, like, what is this? I don't understand. Yeah, right. No, it's, I mean, it's sort of nothing. I mean, it's that part. Is, I mean, it was pretty effective in terms of, you know, arsons and murders. Yeah. It wasn't right. nothing. It's not nothing. But I mean, he... It, it's just wild. It was like, just the most impotent, impotent Nazi salute of all time. <laughs> just like the police are just like, what is this guy doing? Right? Uh, yeah. And of course, all the band members were hauled in for questioning after this huge front page article comes out mm-hmm, along mm-hmm. with various people from the black circle. Remember what they called the gang that hung around the record shop. Yeah. Right. And at the end of it all, Count Grishnak was cleared and released from jail mm-hmm. in March of 1993 due to lack of evidence. <laughs> so that same month, Count Grishnak released an EP called Aske, mm-hmm. which is Ashes in Norwegian, mm-hmm. on Euronymous's label, Death Like Silence. His band Burzum is one yeah. band band. Yeah. And a photo of the burned down Fantoff church, the first church that burned was the cover art making. <laughs> Go ahead. Girls laughing. Making Count Grishnak what I would call the cockiest man in Norway. <laughs> like, can you believe that? That's oh, wild. That is wild. What if that? What if the whole thing? Everyone in Norway is like these guys are. Ex- it's so extreme, but really, it's just like the average arrogance of an American teenager of oh the nineties. I mean, I can't even. I was like, the same month. Yeah, he's cleared after doing a front page article in the biggest <laughs> yeah, yeah. newspaper, like one of the biggest like Norwegian no, newspapers. Yeah. That he puts out the. <laughs> he puts out an album called Ashes with the church burned down wild ass uh, <sighs> so okay. the who's eviler pissing contest mm-hmm. was exacerbated when count grishnek took credit for the church burnings right? it seems like the count is is burning euronymous in this competition right. euronymous hasn't done anything evil in a while it feels like and in march of 1993 we also see the close of euronymous's beloved record shop mm-hmm. his parents had helped fund the lease for helvete like we talked about last time and when all the church burnings went down and investigations into mayhem the black circle and ostensibly hell the hell record shop mm-hmm. euronymous's parents pulled the plug on the failing business they were just like no more count grishnak later recalled that to appease his parents euronymous did an interview wearing a white sweatshirt and he said euronymous quote once 
came to one of the newspapers wearing a white sweater and later apologized to the scene in case he had insulted anybody. It was all because of his parents. He was 26 years old. (laughs) That's his quote. Uh, So all this is going on. And meanwhile, investigators quietly were like, wait, did that kid say he killed someone in Lilyhammer? And they just kind of, quietly kept on investigating. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. even though Count Grishnak is out of jail, he's not out of the woods. Oh, wow. Speaking of the woods, Faust has not been arrested yet either, right? No, Faust is kicking it. He's yeah. fine. He, okay. he, he, as far as he's concerned, right. it is what it is. He did it. He didn't like it. Okay. Yeah, he's yeah. probably not going to do it again, but he's also yeah. like, yeah, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So like I said earlier, the beginning of the end of this scene came with a death threat. So Euronymous always liked to threaten people. And after Count Grishnak gave his infamous interview, Euronymous turned back to his early passion, letter writing. Mm-hmm. According to the book Lords of Chaos, Euronymous, itchy to get something evil off the ground, started sending people death threats via mail. Now, by all accounts, other than Count Grishnak's account, Mm -hmm. no one took these letters seriously. Now, aside from the letters, in the summer of 1993, the scene was really reaching a boiling point. Euronymous and Count Grishnak were like publicly not friends anymore. The first Mayhem album was about to drop. Plus, their 21-year-old session guitarist, Blackthorn, remember that uh-huh. they had hired earlier? He had a psychotic break. Uh-huh. So ba- Blackthorn's parents tried to get him committed to a mental hospital, but he ran away to live with Count Grishnak in Bergen. Uh-huh. And that's where Counts, the Count still had his other apartment. Yeah. At this point in 1993, Euronymous owed Count Grishnak a lot of money. It, he owed him royalties for his Burzum releases on Death Like Silence. He also owed money to Count Grishnak's mom. And while the Count had actually been in jail earlier in the spring because of this whole like article debacle, mm-hmm. Euronymous was supposed to have handled the pre-sales of the Count's Burzum album Ashes, which mm-hmm. you can imagine... Yeah, it's going through the roof. It would have been a huge sale, right? Yeah, right. I mean, when Mac Dre was in jail for the bank robbery thing, as we learned, that's when he was like the most popular. That's when his album sales started going through the roof. Right. So this guy is like, I mean, this should have been this crazy publicity stunt that would have launched that album in outer space, right? right? But... When he got out of jail, he found out that Euronymous had taken money from people for the albums, but he had never actually made or sent out any of the albums. So <laughs> so he had all this money and owed all these people the, mon- the, the, record, the record, right? And yeah. the money was just gone. Yeah. Like the, the label was kind of like a black pit, right? Uh-huh. So Count Grishnik obviously was like, I want off the label. And Euronymous wanted him to say. He wanted him to sign new contracts with Death Like Silence. And he went so far as to mail pre-signed contracts to Count Grishnak and Bergen in an attempt to pressure him into staying on the label. Yeah. Then what happened next changes depending on the source. But basically, Euronymous either told the guy he was going to torture Count Grishnak to death, or according to an article from The Guardian, he sent Grishnak a letter that in part read, quote, I'm going to send some people to torture you until you die. Okay. (laughs) Now, presumably that had something to do with signing the contract. Okay, all right. So 
in his dingy apartment in Bergen with Blackthorn on the couch in the midst of a psychotic break, Count Grishnet came up with a perfect plan for murder in self-defense. Uh, <laughs> preemptively. So he watched a movie with Blackthorn so that they could remember the details together. Mm -hmm. Then he and Blackthorn got a friend to come stay at the Count's place, use the Count's bank card to rent the same movie, and then watch it pretending to be Grishnak and Blackthorn. The perfect alibi. Yeah, right. It's like, no, no, no. We, we watched a movie. It's Home Alone. No, I remember all the bits. Right. He puts his aftershave on. He screams. <laughs> Joe Pesci gets knocked in the head with a can of paint. Right. right. And then the neighbors hear that uh -huh. sound coming through his apartment walls. Mm -hmm. And his bank account has the record of him renting the movie that night. Uh -huh. Right. Uh -huh. So they set all of that up. And then on August 10th, 1993, Blackthorn drove Count Grishnak's Volkswagen Golf seven hours back to Oslo with the Count in the back seat hidden by a pile of T-shirts. The plan was murky. I think it was to use the signed contract as bait to mm -hmm. lure Euronymous out and then murder him in self-defense. Mm -hmm. But regardless, they showed up to Euronymous's apartment building, signed contracts in hand in the early hours of, in, in the early morning hours. Mm -hmm. The Count had three knives strapped to his body and he kept a baseball bat, a bayonet, and an ax in his trunk for backup. Blackthorn later said he was told his role in the murder would be for moral support. So the plan was for him to drive the car down and then to hang around outside Euronymous's apartment while Grishnak did all the murdering. Mm -hmm. Now, Blackthorn watched as contracts in hand Count Grishnak reign Euronymous's apartment. When Euronymous answered the intercom, you know, he sounded kind of nervous and groggy and he didn't really want to let the count up. I think it was around four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So, you know, he was like, why are you here? I don't yeah. like this. But he eventually gave in when the count mentioned the signed contract. Mm -hmm. So Blackthorn still stayed a distance away, he smoked a cigarette and, you know, monitored the situation. So the plan was for Count Grishnak to gain entry to the apartment, stab Euronymous quietly inside, and then discreetly leave, contracts in hand. But when Blackthorn saw Euronymous running down the apartment stairs, screaming for help, covered in blood in his underwear, with the Count stabbing him from behind, oh. Blackthorn knew the plan had gone awry. <sighs> so he ran out of the building and back to the car where he hid until the stabbing was over. Jesus. Count Grishnak overtook Euronymous and stabbed his former bandmate and friend, the father of mayhem, 23 times in the back and head in the stairwell. Jesus. Not a single person from the building opened a door or came outside. The Count ran back to the Volkswagen Golf, covered in blood, and jumped in. Count Grishnak drove back to Bergen with Blackthorn in the back seat, totally incapacitated. Yeah. A few hours outside of Oslo, Count Grishnak then stopped by a small pond, washed himself off, and tied his bloody shirt to a stone along with a knife and sunk it all down to the bottom of the pond. As the stabbing happened around four in the morning, and the days are like 18 hours long. I was thinking that, yeah. During Norwegian summers. Yeah. I can only imagine the Count doing all of this in complete broad daylight. Right. 
So the pair finally get back in the car. They finally landed in Bergen. They snagged a nap and cleaned up. And then they went to tighten up their awesome alibi by returning the video that they rented. (laughs) Uh, Rebels without a cause. But we did return our video on time. No late (laughs) fee for us. But it may not have been the perfect crime. The count had left a couple of loose ends. Mm -hmm. First. His contract. (laughs) Well, we'll get to that. Okay. First, the ATM card Count Grishnak left to rent their alibi movie was Mm -hmm. actually the wrong card. So their friend had to use his own money to rent the movie. And that part of the alibi kind of fell through. Okay. Okay. Second, the count didn't actually know for sure whether Yermonymous was actually dead. It seemed very likely, but the count had actually ran away before checking to see if Euronymous was dead. Okay, so you might have a, a witness. Right. Count Grishnak had also forgot to wear the gloves he was supposed to wear to keep from getting his fingerprints on the apartment buzzer and the doorknobs. <laughs> also, yeah. instead of dating the contracts with an earlier date as he had intended... He had accidentally signed and dated the contracts with the date of the murder. And he had accidentally left the contracts at Euronymous's apartment with the date of the murder, his signature, and his bloody fingerprint. Oh, my God. So I there don't we- like laughing about this. I hate that. I know. I'm sorry, but it's it. just what it is. Okay? I hate it, but he really is as stupid as Everybody's, it seems like he was. Yeah, yeah. I know. I, yeah. It's a lot. So there's a brief investigation, but they didn't have to go far. When Count Grishnak, Blackthorn, and others were pulled into questioning, Blackthorn immediately confessed everything. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Faust, who had basically got away with stabbing a man to death in Lilyhammer before Grishnak mentioned it in his big interview, Uh was hauled in for questioning after his ex-girlfriend ratted him out to police. Mm -hmm. So... Essentially, the police were trying to figure out. They were like, we know that this Lilyhammer murder is connected somehow to this black metal scene because of what the count said. But they just couldn't find a connection. Yeah. And out of the woodwork, this girl who had lived with Faust for like a brief period came forward and was like, hey, I heard it was Faust that killed the Lilyhammer guy. And then hell of people came out of the woodwork to be like, listen, because they all know, you right. know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then they're like, yeah, that's metal. And they're like, actually, that's sad and horrible. And that person didn't deserve that on any level. Right. So Faust flat out confessed to the Little Hammer murder as uh-huh. soon as he was brought in. Mm-hmm. He, in turn, snitched on Count Grishnak for all of the church fires he set. And after that, the scene just imploded. Everyone ratted yeah. out everyone they had dirt on, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Uh-huh. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so Count Grishnek was arrested on August 19th, 1993, nine days after the murder of Euronymous. Police found 150 kilograms of explosives, presumably for the explosion of the Nidoros Cathedral slash record launch. Yeah. And 3,000 rounds of ammunition in his Bergen apartment. So he had a fat arsenal Whoa. in his apartment. Yeah, that's too many bullets. In the end, Faust was convicted of the Lillehammer murder and sentenced to 14 years in prison. Blackthorn was sentenced to eight years for accessory to murder in Euronymous's killing. Yeah. And on May 16th, 1993, less than a year after he had joined Mayhem, 
Count Grishnak was sentenced to 21 years in prison for murder. So that's the longest sentence that Norway hands down. Yeah. Um, and that was for three counts of arson, one count of attempted arson, and the theft of the explosives. And not the murder. And the murder. And sorry. the murder. Okay. <laughs> so basically they couldn't put all the church burnings mm-hmm. on Count Grishnak, but it sounds like a lot of them. And you said there was like 22 of them? Well, over the span up until 1995. Yeah. So uh-huh. between oh. 1992 and 1995, there okay. were 22. So there were more burnings. Well, there were actually two burnings the day that he was sentenced. Oh, jeez. So. Oh. Uh, that just started the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Later, Mayhem's co-founder and Euronymous's old childhood friend, Necro Butcher, mm-hmm. if you remember. Yeah, who told, had quit. Yeah, he had quit. He told the press that completely independently of Count Grishnak, he was actually planning on killing Euronymous also. <laughs> he told the interviewers at Consequence.net in uh-huh. 2019, quote, okay. I can tell it right now because I've been holding it in for many years. But actually, I was on my way down to kill him myself. And when it happened, I saw the morning paper thinking, fuck, I got to go home to my place and get out all the weapons and drugs and shit I had in my house because they're coming to my house because I'm probably going to be the number one suspect for that. Damn. What what did he have a reason? Besides he just, just basically said he was like totally, completely enraged about Euronymous taking those photos of dead after a suicide. Yeah. He was just like, it disgusted him. And yeah. it, it was like two years prior. I mean, yeah. it feels like decades ago. Right. right, right. But it had re- happened just relatively it had just happened. Yeah, totally. And he was also just like really mad that Euronymous kind of took the band and then just replaced him. Mm-hmm. So he's like, Euronymous did this terrible thing. And then he just replaced him with Count Grishnak and then started releasing this insane album. Yeah. And right. so he was like, well, I am going to kill him, but he didn't get the chance, <sighs> but he was replaced by the guy who did eventually kill Euronymous. So, you know, uh, poetry. I don't know. I don't know either. Mayhem's debut album, Day Mysterious Dumb Satanus was released in May of 1994 and dedicated to Euronymous. Despite Euronymous's parents objecting to the album being released with Count Grishnak's bass lines, mm-hmm. Mayhem's debut album had both Grishnak's bass and Euronymous's guitar parts. Mm-hmm. Hellhammer, remember the drummer? Yeah. Had offered to re-record the bass lines for Euronymous's parents, but he released the record without doing it. He later said, quote, I thought it was appropriate that the murderer and the victim were on the same record. I put word out that I was re-recording the bass parts, but I never did. According to Wikipedia, (laughs) (laughs) according to Wikipedia, he didn't re-record them because he doesn't know how to play the bass. But he just told the parents he would just to appease them so they'd like give their permission or whatever. Yeah. I mean, they're all assholes. (laughs) They are all assholes. God damn. (laughs) So after he was convicted, the count Mm -hmm. dropped black metal and became a neo-Nazi. And here's his version of what happened. Okay. So for someone who claims to have murdered their victim in self-defense, the count sure was like really mad about Euronymous. Like, Uh you know, most of the interviews that he gives are just like reasons why Euronymous sucks. Uh So it's funny that he's like, you know, people always do this. I feel like in murder cases where they're like, 
you know, they were awful. They yeah. stole from me. You know, they were a poser. They yeah. made me sick. But I mean, I only did it because <laughs> I was defending myself. Yeah. It's like that, you know, come on. Yeah, man. I killed myself. In, I killed him in self-defense because that dumb asshole deserved it. <laughs> yeah. You know, basically, according to interviews from Lords of Chaos, Count Grishnik essentially thought Euronymous was fundamentally a poser. Like mm. every time a church burned, he said Euronymous is like, we did it when he didn't have anything to do with it. Mm. But I'm like, says the man who publicly took credit for yeah. Faust Lilyhammer murder. Yeah, like, right. I think you kind of did the same thing. Yeah, dude. Right. But at any rate, he, he, he said a lot of stuff that actually a lot of people from the scene kind of refute. Mm. It wasn't that people were like, desperately defending Euronymous, but they yeah. just thought the whole thing was really stupid. He yeah. was like, it was stupid. A lot of guys in mayhem were against the church burnings. Mm -hmm. Like essentially they were like Count Grishnek just went way over the top and like ruined the band is, uh -huh. is, is the idea. Grishnek says, Oh, you know, Euronymous was so annoying. Everybody hated him. He was a loud mouth. Mm -hmm. He was a poser. He goes, my friends used to laugh and call Euronymous the mouthpiece of Grishnek. Because he said, like, Euronymous would just parrot whatever he said. So yeah. that's, like, Count Grishnek's version Right, of and everyone else is like, no, we liked Euronymous. He was cool. A lot of people said that. Or at least yeah. they were like, what? Yeah, right. But at any rate, Count Grishnek, you know, confirms they were both beefing really hard by mm -hmm. the time the murder came up. Yeah. But so it could have been a fight about leadership, that the church burnings were putting Helvete out of business, money issues, you name it. Like, who knows why? But they were having a lot of beef. Yeah, or just maybe a dedication to a culture that has no morals except for just be shitty to each other. Yeah, that could definitely be it. So the Count says none of that matters, though, right? Mm -hmm. Because he killed Euronymous in self-defense. <laughs> so he says when he received the death threat, you know, he decided he's going to show up to Euronymous's apartment and kill him first, right? That mm -hmm. was his idea, his plan. And the Count said, you know, even though he came to Euronymous's apartment to kill him, Euronymous was actually the one to throw the first blow. Mm. He said basically when he entered Euronymous's apartment, Euronymous seemed to like sense something was off. <laughs> and so he turned around yeah, yeah. and kicked him in the chest and then ran deep into the apartment. Uh -huh. So at that point, like something happened and he knew something was up. Yeah, well, he's straight up acting like a someone who's going to murder someone. I mean, he's not, I'm sure he's not a good actor. Well, and he forgot to wear the gloves. Like this guy is clearly doing a bad job of doing this murdery thing. And then he shows up. He's like, ah, you're acting really murdery right now. Let me kick you in the chest. Uh, get him out. Get him out of the apartment. Right. Yeah. So count Grishnak, when he saw, you know, he got kicked and he saw Euronymous run off. He assumed Euronymous was going for a knife. So he just started stabbing him preemptively. So that's mm -hmm. why he said it was self-defense. He didn't see the knife, but he did stab him before he presumptively Got it. reached for a knife. Yes. When Euronymous ran out of the apartment screaming for help and ringing doorbells, Grishnak got frustrated. So he continued to chase him and stab him in the back. But Grishnak's main point in the whole thing was that even if he did pre-plan the murder, none of it mattered because Euronymous struck him first. Mm -hmm. And to illustrate his point, Grishnak reminds the interviewer that, you know, he says, I haven't, I, I wasn't even wearing any gloves when I stabbed Euronymous, you know, which proved <laughs> he wasn't intending to kill anyone mm -hmm. because if he was going to murder someone, how could he be so stupid as to forget gloves, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Also, Count Grishnak wanted to make sure everyone was aware 
that as Euronymous was running, he slipped and fell against a lamp and it broke. Mm -hmm. So some of the cuts from that, like running into the lamp. Oh, it wasn't the stabbing. It was the broken light bulb. Right. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, some of the cuts came from that. And Uh to say that he stabbed Euronymous 23 times is an exaggeration. Okay. I just want to be clear about that. Uh And the medical examiners were like, nope, that little scratch there (laughs) is from the the lamp. And that is all from the knife. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So Count Grishnek told Lords of Chaos, in his opinion, he's pretty sure he never would have gotten caught if it weren't for the rats. Without them, he had committed the perfect crime. Grishnak later said, quote, it's Mm -hmm. typical. These unimportant people could be important this way by ratting each other off. So they did. Of course, I was the big bad guy. (laughs) Man, first of all, you're only a rat if you go against your friends when there's a predetermined code of conduct. It's not you're not a rat if you tell on someone in a world in which you don't have any sort of agreement on the morals that you're going forward in the world with. So it looks like, you know, maybe he had a little hole in his philosophy. I think he did. It's yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) and you know, to top it all off, I'll he does actually say he has some real remorse. Mm-hmm. His biggest regret from the whole ordeal is not killing Blackthorn when he had the chance. <laughs> okay. So just make right. sure we all know okay. that. Yeah. So he does feel very sorry about his actions when it came to not killing Blackthorn. It's like almost what he said verbatim. Yeah. So we'll leave the final word with accessory to the murder slash session guitarist Blackthorn. Mm-hmm. According to his interviews with Lords of Chaos, Blackthorn thinks that Count Grishnak actually killed Euronymous because he was just jealous that Faust had actually killed someone. Mm. He said the Count would kind of obsessive. He would always play it off, but he was mm-hmm. low-key really obsessive about bringing up the Lillehammer killing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he says, look, he ended up killing Euronymous in basically the exact same way. This brutal stabbing frenzy mm-hmm. when he had lots of options to choose from, you know, Blackthorn doesn't understand the Count's version of events. <laughs> he says, quote, I don't understand what he wants with his story. <laughs> yeah. He's right. just like, I don't even understand like what he thinks he's going to get from telling this story. As for himself, Blackthorn also says he has no regrets about Euronymous's murder. He says of Euronymous, quote, he was not a swordsman. He wasn't as tough as he claimed. He didn't receive a just death. That would be too stupid to say. But he got a just death according to who he posed as. I like Euronymous for what he was, but he refused to admit that he was like that. He took away what I found to be sympathetic about him. Hmm. Yes, it's not as if a little girl was run over in the road or something. Well, I guess I, I guess I can't spot the lie. <laughs> I think maybe Blackthorn put it together there. <laughs> I thought it was like kind of the most uh, honest quote from anybody in this thing. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so what the hell happened with Mayhem? They're, they put out many albums, right? There were other people that just kept the name going. In 1995, you really, we're gelling today. You're asking the questions I'm about to answer. Look at this. <laughs> we're doing it. 
<laughs> well, I think that's a, you know, you're a good storyteller. So in some ways, you know, what comes next, you know, we're yearning for it. Oh, that's very sweet. In 1995, Nicholas, mm-hmm. a bootleg copy of Mayhem's infamous 1990 concert was released to the public from a fan in South America under the title, quote, the dawn of the black hearts. Mm. So the cover art was one of the photos Euronymous took of dead after yeah. suicide. Yeah. And I know this is really gruesome, but I'm going to describe it so you know how absolutely drastic this album cover is. Yeah. It's dead, lying on a bed, wearing a white t-shirt that says, I Heart Transylvania on it. Uh-huh. And the top half of his skull is gone. Yeah. And most of his brain is on the bed beside him, along with this artfully arranged rifle and butcher knife. And mm-hmm. that was the cover of the 1990 bootleg album right. that was released right, right. after Euronymous' death. How'd they get the photo? So after Euronymous was murdered, his dad actually found the photos and the negatives uh-huh. of Death of Dead, yeah. like in Euronymous' room, mm-hmm. and he destroyed everything. But Euronymous had already sent out at least one copy into the world. You know, oh, he's like through a, his, he's through a letter his fanzine writer. pen pals. Yeah, 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 right. So he's a letter writer. He's, uh-huh. he's always corresponding. So he had at least sent one copy. So the unsubstantiated legend is that before he was murdered, Euronymous had sent one of the photos to a pen pal he had in Colombia called Bull Metal. And this Bull Metal guy was responsible for this incredibly well-timed album release right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but nobody knows for sure how that happened so (sighs) after they released this you know insane notorious bootleg Mm -hmm. tape with this horrific album cover on it mayhem decides to get back together so they reformed that same year and they have continued to perform with different configurations of people with Necro Butcher and Hellhammer holding down the fort. Oh, so Necro Butcher came back. Yeah, Necro Butcher came back. Hellhammer was there, and then they circled through like Maniac. They had all these other. Oh, Maniac came back. Yeah, like for a brief time, and then one of the guys pushed him down the stairs because he was getting too drunk before concerts, and so he quit. Okay. Uh, but there's like lots of like lots of cycles through, but they continued mm-hmm. to play, mm-hmm. and their last concert tour was actually canceled canceled due to COVID. They were supposed to go on a big. Um, tour in 2020 and the band was inducted into the Rockheim Hall of Fame in Norway in 2021 damn so mayhem lives on (laughs) that's it (laughs) I guess that's the I guess that's a good name for the band because the thing about mayhem is you know it's like the I don't know the echo in the abyss or something like it never actually disappears. It just continues and bounces off things. And yeah. Continues to cause chaos. I mean, that's kind of, I think that's really astute. There's, it is true. And you know, man, they still couldn't keep the same bandmates together. They kept two the entire <laughs> time. Pushing each other they, downstairs. They lost and got, yeah, like Maniac, he got, I think it was Hellhammer. One of those guys pushed him down the stairs and, yeah. and then like he was freaked out. So he left. And I mean, they were just like, They've cycled through all kinds of people. Yeah. And uh, they're still kind of rocking. So that's wow. the end of Mayhem the Band. They're still there. Uh, uh, sources? All right. Wait, yes. do you want to say anything? No. I, I, I <laughs> Honestly, to be honest, what, uh, what's his name? Blackthorn? Yeah. What he said is, is the thing. I think so, too. Yeah. Along with... R.I.P. Dead, R.I.P. the nameless man from the woods who I'm assuming he didn't name to keep privacy intact. And, you know, I mean, R.I.P. Euronymous. He's just a victim of his 
of his own, you know, when keeping it metal goes wrong, you know? Yeah. It's funny. I finished writing the second half of this Yeah, and I had a lot of um, empathy for Euronymous. You know, after all this, it's like he was, um, I think that he might have done a lot of terrible things that like, you know, I don't really, you don't really know. And he could just be like the worst person ever. But like out of all of the people, you know, he was kind of, in a lot of ways, a lot, he was like the gentlest one, you know? Like, I mean, the other guys kind of stayed out of it. Like, I think Necro Butcher and Hellhammer yeah. kind of stayed out of it. But, like, I guess Hellhammer's a white supremacist now. <laughs> They're all kind of not, you know, like, there's a lot of, you know, not great <laughs> stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. They're like, like, Hellhammer came out and was, like, against race mixing. They're just like... There's definitely. Oh, so he would be against this podcast. Yeah. Like basically he goes, and his whole thing was like, oh, I was totally against the church burnings. You're like, oh, and he's like, yeah, we're going to burn anything down, burn down foreign churches. Uh, And I was just like, oh, (laughs) 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 at any turn, it's like, oh, that's nice. And it's like, oh, that's the worst. Like necrobusher is like, Necro Butcher is like, oh, you know, I quit the band because I didn't like the horrible things that Euronymous did. And then I planned to murder him. Yeah, right. And then when that horrible thing actually reinvigorated our band, I started it again. Exactly. And capitalized on that. Actually, it's interesting. So, you know, that came out and that like totally reinvigorated the band. Right. And then they reassembled and they let that sell for a second. But then they re-released that album again. Uh-huh. Like, and, and they put Necro Butcher on the cover. Uh-huh. So he was like, they right. took, they took the cover off, but they definitely didn't stop it from circulating. <laughs> There's going to be a sympathetic place in your heart for someone who's obviously vulnerable and obviously looking for approval in these different ways and trying to make a mark on the world and all those sort of youthful vulnerabilities, yeah. you know, and, and like Black Thorn said, he tried to like hide that, the sympathy from people like what what he say like the thing that made him sympathetic was the thing that Euronymous was trying to always cut off yeah but that implies that he wasn't able to cut it off yeah right I mean I think Kraftwerk is like an amazing example of that it's of just like, like at, yeah. at, the, at the heart of it it's just yeah. like you know he's just, just like at the end of the day he was just alone listening to Kraftwerk yeah all right all right resources what you got muriel uh i have three sources and they were all really great um so there's a 2005 article by chris campion for the guardian called in the face of death Mm -hmm. it's an awesome article and and it's short so if you're like curious of more things Mm -hmm. that's a great thing to check out um the 1996 article satan's cheerleaders by darcy steinke for spin magazine and then of course the book Lords of Chaos, The Bloody Rise at the Satanic Metal Underground by Michael Moynihan and Diedrich Soderlund. Um, that is yeah. an awesome book if you're looking for interviews. They have so many interviews. Yeah. Like that's half the book and it's amazing to just hear what people have to say and, you know, their own words about this time. I'm going to call it. I just have this sense in in coming from within me that you took all this information and arranged it in a way that now makes this podcast a a good resource for this story. I don't oh, know. I didn't you, read Nick. your shit, obviously, but I just feel <laughs> like this now counts. Yeah, you know, uh, 
it's a really incredible story and I had never heard it. And so yeah. I'm so grateful for this suggestion from Jamie. It's yeah. crazy. And uh, it was fun to kind of try. I mean, you know, fun. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a terrible person, but yeah. it was really interesting to try to construct it in a narrative arc as opposed yeah. to kind of, you know, doing it piece by piece. Because yeah. a lot of the stories about it are broken up. They're not to told chronologically. But when you look at it, yeah. the big arc of the beginning to end, right? you know, and how young they were and like how short the whole thing was. Yeah, you know? right. I mean, that's a, just a huge part of the tragedy of it all. Too, yeah. It's just the, how young Yeah. Sometimes were. like chronology of something is just it adds so much more to what, you know, like to look at the full timeline adds all this whole other element to yeah. how you view what happened. And you did that. Oh, you did oh, that. Nikki, you brought that Nikki. heat. You're metal AF. No posers allowed. Okay. You're the best. All right. We got to go. We got to go to a wedding. <laughs> yeah, let's go celebrate matrimony. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting. I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. Jamie did all the requesting. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Find us on social media at Muriel's Murders, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open. We really do try to follow you back and stay up on correspondences uh, we, we, we do try our best we love it when you guys reach out to us it really means the world you can email us at murielsmurders at gmail.com and please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts if you like us give us a five star review and we us. haven't gotten a review in the whole month of May I know and I know you guys mayhem is this is a good couple of episodes so you better, you know, <laughs> say, if you liked them you should say yeah <laughs> and if you're listening on Spotify, you can rate us there as well. And also you could add this episode to playlists of other podcasts your friends might like. Yeah. And, uh, you know, find that Spotify playlist show notes of this kind of music in the, uh, I said something, whatever, just find the link. <laughs> okay. Like our music is by Mario Castellini. <laughs> find them on Instagram at Castellini Beats. All right, guys. That's it. Have a great day. Rock on. Rock on.